Of course, I'm very grateful to be back in Eau Claire. For those who are not familiar, it's Eau Claire. It's good to come back to a land that has refreshed us on many occasions. As I uh, continue the work uh, begun by uh, Roger Best, who uh, introduced many of you in this area to the pre-wrath position and who uh, pioneered the, the conference uh, as far as assigned ministries is concerned, it's, it's good to come back and see and hear people say, well, I was at the, um, the old uh, movie theater or I was at Salem or I was here, I was there as you connect with us and remind us of the longevity of our relationship over the past uh, 10 12, 14 years. Uh, of course, our long-time and long-term relationship uh, through Alan Kirshner, who is a, a great uh, writer, uh, research and scholar of his, in his own right, uh, as he has really become the next generation uh, of uh, those who will carry on the position. Roger is... Uh, uh, old enough to be my dad. Um, I'm old enough to be Alan's dad, um, almost. And so that, uh, we see, we're carrying on the generations as uh, as we move along. So we are delighted. So good to see uh, many of you. There are members of our family that uh, we get together about once a year, and we get to see one another because of our travels. And, of course, uh, some of you who were at the conference last year I haven't seen since um, that and it's good to see you. It's good to see all of us are getting older, uh, wiser, wider, and um, it just uh, continues right in the same vogue, in the same uh, vein. Next year, we're already thinking about next year. Uh, two options for next year to either go to uh, New Jersey for our third annual conference or to the upper panhandle of uh, Florida. Uh, next year's conference, we're already excited about it. We we have tentatively booked the uh, director of the uh, Holy Land uh, Temple Mount, uh, faithful to come and talk about their work in rebuilding a temple in Jerusalem. And uh, as things are developing along, that's quite exciting uh, things going. And then there are a couple other um, uh, wonderful people that we are thinking about utilizing. There are people who are pre-wrath who, uh, for various reasons, have not chosen to be public, uh, but um, are beginning to feel some need to begin to speak out about their commitment and view of the position. And uh, we're kind of hoping that they will do that and uh, come out and, and share with you. You will be uh, wonderfully surprised as you begin to see what's going on. There is a underground current uh, that is beginning to uh, draw energy. Most of that is because of some of the events that we see in the news that's beginning to take shape that gives great evidence that pre-wrath is sound, not only biblically, but in terms of the experience of historical development. So uh, we're very excited. Uh, this next year will be quite uh, quite an undertaking for us. I'll get to talk to you a little bit about our new uh, 
project as far as a, um, a survival training campus um, in Orlando, and we'll talk about a little about that on uh, Saturday morning. And we are continuing our work. I felt like after Sign Ministries, after my tenure there, that there was a need to develop resources. Um, there needed to be home Bible studies, Sunday school literature, and more books written, uh, particularly books that would give answer to the critics who, tend, who tended to try to marshal uh, scholars. They tried to get the best scholarship that they could get uh, to write uh, in response to our position, and I felt very strongly that we needed to respond um, in a more scholarly fashion, not that what we were saying was not true, but we wanted to marshal as much evidence as we could uh, in support of our position because we believe not only is that it's biblical, but we believe that regardless of what level of God's word you're working at is going to confirm and bring greater strength depth and argument to the position. And uh, I feel 110% confident of that very notion. And so the Pre-Wrath Resource Institute was primarily started to do that. We have spent the last uh, three years trying to uh, study as much as we could to produce the first books out of our study. Uh, we've done that. We have two published. There are two in the, in the wing as far as I'm concerned. Alan is going to talk to you about uh, his writing that has come along and these are designed with one focus in mind, and that is to answer our critics because we believe that ultimately uh, the uh, leadership will lead the flock. Uh, we have had a great groundswell as far as laymen are concerned. The laymen have picked up the truth and begun and have run with it. Um, they are running and running strong, uh, but we need to get into seminaries, Bible colleges, and that is our, our goal uh, today. So thank you for coming. It's good to see all of you. I look forward to um, shaking hands if I haven't with you and fellowshipping with you a little bit over tomorrow and then uh, through Saturday morning. Uh, We've got a full day tomorrow, a good lot of time to fellowship around either breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Uh, and So hopefully if you want to take me and pay, I'll be glad to go with you <laughs> to eat with you. Well, God, God bless you. There is no topic that I get more questions about than the issue of where are we in terms of biblical fulfillment. Everybody wants to know how close are we. They see things happening. They see the signs. They see events fulfilling, and they perceive that they have value as far as fulfillment of specific biblical prophecy. And so I either get an email or I get a call, somebody hears or sees of something that happens and they want to know how does that relate to where we are in the timeline. Uh, and of course, as they listen to the television uh, gurus, I'll say, um, some of them kind of make you feel like this is it, it's tomorrow. And of course they find a fulfillment on every rock, which is not true. And so it's important for us not to get caught up 
um, and not to spend too much time on things that really are not essential. Uh, we need to be sure that we stay biblical. Uh, always answer a question, I don't know if you don't know. There's nothing to be gained by trying to bolster the position by something that is really not biblical. Uh, there is no need to be sensational. This, this battle is not going to be won by how sensational we are. It's going to be won by the consistent application of the plain, what we call the normal, natural, customary sense of Scripture. And I want to show you tonight, uh, I wanted to spend a little time talking about this timing issue, and I wanted to show some of the historical background and then talk a little bit about what I think are the kinds of things that you really need to be paying attention to uh, if you want to keep your clock wound for the times. If you study the, uh, the church history, you will quickly discover that the church fathers um, had a belief that um, 6,000 years from the day of creation would bring the manifestation of Christ from heaven. In fact, in the writings, um, it, you, won't, you won't have to read long before you find this, this teaching. If you examine the church father Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, depending on how they pronounce it, you will discover that he, um, he championed a belief that was very prevalent and came to have prominence in the church after him. Uh, in fact, he writes, quote, For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days created things were completed. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the 6,000th year. Later, a man by the name of Lactantius, the tutor of the son of the Roman emperor Constantine, uh, in his book of Divine Institutes, he writes, quote, Let the philosophers know that the 6,000th year is not yet complete. And when this number is completed, the consummation must take place. That's a very, uh, <coughs> that, now that's a very dogmatic statement. Then say may, then must. One of the church writers that I am most fond of is a man by the name of Hippolytus. I have read just about everything he he wrote. And on six separate occasions, he argued for this notion. He wrote, For the first appearance of our Lord in the flesh took place in Bethlehem under Augustus in the year 5,500. He suffered in the 33rd year, and 6,000 years must need be accomplished in order that the Sabbath may come, the rest, the holy day on which God rested from all his works. Close quote. He goes on, he says, For the Sabbath is a type and an emblem of the future kingdom of the saints when they shall reign with Christ 
when he comes from heaven. As John says in his apocalypse, for a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Close quote. Uh, of course, which is not in the apocalypse of John, uh, but the writing of Peter. He writes then, six days God made all things as follows, that six thousand years must be fulfilled, and they are not yet fulfilled. As John said, five are fallen, one is, and that is the sixth, the other is not yet come. Now, immediately you begin to notice his hermeneutic. <coughs> in mentioning the other, moreover, he specifies the seventh in which there is rest. But, some, but one may be ready to say, how will you prove to me that the Savior was born in the year 5,500? Learn that easily, a man, for the things that took place old in the wilderness under Moses in the case of the tabernacle were constituted types and emblems of spiritual mysteries. So he is spiritualizing the significance of the Old Testament. At the time, then, the Savior appeared and showed his own body to be to the world, born of the virgin who was, who was the ark overlaid with pure gold, with the word wherein the Holy Spirit without, so that the truth is demonstrated and the ark made manifest. From the birth of Christ, then, we must reckon 500 years that remain to make up 6,000, and thus the end shall come. So now, according to this guy, Hippolytus, there's an early one and a latter one. Okay? The early one was very conservative. The latter Hippolytus was a little more loose um, in his biblical interpretation, which I find rather fascinating. However, he did not uh, turn from his conviction, and neither did 13 other church fathers, that there was some kind of relationship between uh, the six days of creation, 6,000 years of human history, uh, and the return of Christ. Uh, this idea was picked up in A.D. 1552 uh, by the Bishop Latimer, who wrote, The world was ordained to endure, as all learned men affirm, 6,000 years. Now of that number, there be already passed 5,000 552 years as of the year A.D. 1552, so that there is now no more left but 448 years. And of course, 448 years from the year 1542 would be the year A.D. 2000. And so according to Bishop Latimer, Christ should have returned in the year 2000. The writings of other church fathers, such as Victorinus, the bishop of Petau, and Hippolytus, all supported this notion and taught that the millennium would come at the end of 6,000 years. You need to also know that this view can be found in the writings of the early Jewish non-Christian writers. They expressed the view that the Messiah would come at the end of the present century. <clears throat> After the Bible, the Talmud is the most authoritative source of Judaism. The view frequently expressed in the Talmud, according to researchers, is that the world as we know it would last only 6,000 years. Uh, their chief rabbi taught that the world is to exist 6,000 years. In the first 2,000 years, that was desolation, no Torah. 
from Adam to Abraham. 2,000 years, the Torah flourished, and the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era. He emphasized, he emphasized that the Messiah did come at the uh, beginning of the last 2,000 years, and he would come at the end of the same. That the 2,000 years between Christ's first coming and his second coming would be bracketed by 2,000 years. In the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Talmud, it writes that the world endures 6,000 years, and 1,000 it shall be laid waste. That is, the enemy of God shall be destroyed. Wherefore it is said, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. As out of seven years, every seventh is a year of remission. So out of the 7,000 years of the world, the seventh millennium shall be the millennial year of remission, that God alone will be exalted in that day. The sabbatical principle is also applied to this in that God, God's labor of creation took six days followed by a day of rest. His Sabbath commandment to Israel was to keep it holy. He created his creative work with humanity and humanity's labor likewise probably comprises 6,000 years with the seventh being one of the divinely provided rest and holiness with God's present and exalted on the earth. All of the allegorical people who love to find meaning in everything, there are few allegorical interpretations of the ancients that was consistent as you know, allegorical interpretation is kind of hard to figure out when you're not when you're by yourself, because you can't see it. But the one teaching that was somewhat consistent among these allegorical people was the idea that the jubilees did, does or did in fact symbolically depict the chronology. Uh, of God's intent for his creation. If Solomon's reign is symbolic of the millennium, there may be further symbolism in Solomon's temple, a symbolic picture of God's perfect temple, the church which he has been building. The temple was 120 cubits high. <clears throat> there were also 120 priests blowing trumpets, and the queen of Sheba gave Solomon 120 talents of gold. As mentioned, Jewish history is marked by jubilee periods of 50 years duration. And 120 times 50 jubilees is 6,000 years. The period allotted for the earth's lease. As Genesis 6-3 says, that man's day shall be limited to 120 years, which Dr. Reginald Cherry says in his book, The Bible Cure, is the full limit of man's cell duplication capability. <clears throat> this 120 may likewise refer to the full limit of man's capability to duplicate himself. 120 jubilees, or 6,000 years. Israel's jubilee celebration, as recorded in Leviticus 25, was 
filled with end-time typology. It began with a trumpet. It was a proclamation of liberty throughout the whole land. It was a holy time. It was a time of rest. It meant the return of the possessions to its owner. It was a time of enjoyment of the harvest for which man did not have to work. This is a depiction of the millennium. So, is there any basis to seriously consider that our Lord will return in connection with the termination of the sixth millennium? A very popular view among some. Should we pay attention to it? Should you be nervous? What should be our response? I would say three things. Number one, the method of interpretation is allegorical or spiritualization and not normal, natural, customary sense of the text. It is not sufficient to build a theology on an allegory or a figure of speech. To say that a day is as a thousand years with God is true. However, it does not say that a day is a thousand years. There is a difference. Therefore, to apply that principle, though done consistently by lots of people, to me is encroaching upon the allegorical spiritualization of God's word to make it say or do what we want rather than the intent of the scriptures. It's, it's a nice formula. It looks good. It sounds good. But there's, there really is very, very little biblical basis for it if you believe in the literal plain sense of God's word. And so I would say that on the basis of good hermeneutic, just good Bible study, it fails. I would have to reject that in light of Scripture. Uh, the second thing I would say is that there is a real problem with uh, the time clock. Now, all of us, if asked, Tonight, what, what day, what's the date? If you ask somebody, what, what's the date? They would say this is July the 16th, 2009. Now, if somebody ever tells you that they're perfect, then you ask them what day it is and they'll lie to you. Then you can tell me not perfect. Because all historians are clear that this is not the year 2009. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows that the guy who set the Western calendar 
missed the birth of Jesus by at least four years. Now, everybody knows that. There's nobody that don't know. Well, I want you to know, but I don't know. But if you know anything about chronology and time, you know that he missed it by four years. So at best, this is 2005. At best. It's definitely not 2009. Uh, the best scholarship would put it probably, <coughs> they missed it by about 13 years. The best, more conservative guy would say about 13 years. So he put the birth of Christ about 13 years after he was really born, which would mean that we haven't hit the year 2000 yet. So um, all of you who aspire to be perfect, somebody asked you what time you tell me, I don't know. Because now you've answered correctly. I don't know. They don't have a faintest idea. They don't know what year this is. It's a guess. The Western clock is highly dubious. The Western calendar, the way we count time today, is actually based on the, the writing of one man. A guy by the name of Ptolemy, Claudius Ptolemy, a Greek writer. His chronology of the ancient time is the basis of our Western clock. One guy. According to this guy named Ptolemy, the Persian Empire lasted 208 years. Supposedly there were 10 kings with a total number of years, 208. His chronology became the basis of our modern Western clock. Now you need to know this. No other Greek or Hebrew chronologist agrees with him in any detail regarding five supposed kings of Persia. None. So if you read Josephus, uh, if you read Herodotus, uh, if you read any of the guys who wrote a historical chronology, None of them agree with this guy named Ptolemy. He gives 208 years. All the other guys have a much shorter period of time. Yet we chose this guy to be our example we were going to go by. You also need to know that the Western clock is totally contrary to the Jewish clock. If you go online right now to any website that gives you the calendar year of the Hebrews, what year is it on the Hebrew clock? 5,700 what? Have you looked lately? 68. According to the Jews who were there, 
they say this is 5,768 years from creation this year, this year. 5,768. Yet the Western clock says this is 7,900 years since the first day of creation. Uh, I don't know about you, but that ought to cause you some pause. Now, the fellows that have been kind of keeping, keeping control of the clock, the Jews, they say, you guys got too many years. And we tell them they don't have enough. Who's right? So when you read or you hear on television some guy that gets up and tells you this, 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 that the Bible uses two calendars. That is without debate. There is a possibility that it uses three. It uses a lunar calendar based on having 354 days in a year. A pure lunar calendar alternating 29 and 30 day months fact that the Old Testament Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 12 is using a lunar calendar of 354 days a year fact it's not debate but by the time we get to the book of Daniel and in fact the Exodus Moses begins to use the Egyptian calendar. The Egyptian calendar is based on 360-day years, 12 30-day months. Which is why you get to the book of Revelation, 1,260, 42 months. Those are 30-day months. And what happened? Well, he's just using 30-day months. That's an Egyptian calendar without the addition of the additional five days, which they would do. But in the scripture, for some reason, they didn't add the extra five days. They simply gave 12 30 day month calendars, which, by the way, they were utilizing before Daniel 9. There is also one reference to a pure Western calendar. Uh, 365.25 days. And there is a reference in the Old Testament where he is using an actual Western calendar. He makes a reference and the date will not accord, it will not accord on a lunar calendar or the Egyptian calendar. It will only accord on a 365.25 calendar year which is our modern western book how did the old testament people know that i don't know all i know is the number won't work unless you give in the year those dates 
Now, I spent just about nine months studying just one verse. Nine months, eight, ten, fifteen hours a day. Nine months. I nearly pulled all my hair out, went crazy. <clears throat> because once I get on it, I can't quit until I find it. And if I don't find it, I'll, I'll never, I'll, I'll just die. I finally figured it out that when Daniel begins his calendar in Daniel chapter 9, he begins by using the Egyptian calendar, 360-day year, 30 days per month. And that that is the calendar that is utilized to mark the consummation of the age. In other words, when you get to the book of Revelation, you start reading 1,260 days, 42 months. That calendar has been in effect ever since Daniel 9. And any calculations about where we are in history relative to 6,000 years has to be figured on an Egyptian calendar. Not a lunar calendar, which is what the Jews use. It's a modified one. And not the Western calendar. Now, I've spent the last six months trying to figure out what year is this Because if somebody asks you, well, how close are we, then the first thing I'm, my, my mind is, we are in, what year are we in on an Egyptian calendar? <sighs> when most of you are rolling over catching that second nap, I'm still awake. To my best... Um, so far, I'm not through, I'm, I'm not finished. To my best, oh, good man, yeah, you just know preachers. I love a man who knows those preachers. Pastor's a pastor, of course. Yeah, that's right, it takes one to know one. I have not yet finished, and therefore I cannot be dogmatic. But to my best ability, based on the numbers, because the Old Testament uses what is called a colophonic connection. A colophon is a reference at the end of one book that begins the next book. 
And as you read through the Old Testament, you will discover that there are colophonic connections between certain books. Where what was talked about in the last chapter of one book is the first thing talked about in the next book. And that means those two go together. That's how you can figure out which prophet was prophesying at what time because of who they refer to and what they say was happening at the end of this one and beginning of the next one. <clears throat> as far as it comes to numbers, there are colophonic connections in the Bible that allow us to count from the first day of creation to the destruction of the second temple. Now we can count that day per day. And what that means is that we can actually sit down and say January 1st in the year 3331 from the first day of creation. We can actually mark it because the Bible gives references 480 years, 200 years, 430. It gives these references that count time. And so I, I know, I'm, I feel 100% confident that we can count up to the destruction of Jerusalem without missing a year, missing a date. And that the Bible gives dates all along that road map that tells you exactly where you are relative to the first day of creation. No, that I have no doubt. The problem is that once you get to the destruction of Jeru the second temple, uh, you run into a little problem because we don't have any biblically authorized dates since the 70th week. Uh, since the destruction of the second temple. And that's where I've run into a problem. Because I have to decide, okay, what am I going to use as a marker for the for the next event that gives you the the time from the destruction of the second temple to this date and from that date to, say, where we are today. I am confident that we are, I'm close. The number that I've gotten on three different computations is that we are in the year 6,050. Well, now we already got a problem because that's 50 too many if I was following these other guys. So now that either tells me that these people who were thinking that the earth was going to end after 6,000 years, they're already off 50 years, if I believe that. I don't believe that, therefore I don't know whether this is right or not. Now, obvious question to you is, why is this important? What's, what's the big deal? Well, the next time some guy tells you that the 70th week has to start because Israel was back in the land and in this and in one generation, it's got to be blah, blah, blah. First thing you ask me is, what calendar are you working on? Because on a lunar calendar, we're already in the year seven, in the seventh millennium, almost. I mean, it runs faster, much faster than the shorter calendars do. I do not believe, no, that's not right, I'm sorry, um, not the seventh millennium. We're past the sixth millennium, almost into the 70th years. 
past that on a lunar calendar. The reason this is interesting to me is because God does seem to work in patterns. And I don't know what pattern he's using, but I do know this, that if you're working on the basis of time and clock, you're probably going to be wrong. Because Jesus in Matthew 24 did not give us a temporal clock. He gave us a sign. He did not give us any markers that would give us any indication on a temporal clock. It's the year, blah, blah, blah. He did not. He gave us signs. He said in Matthew 24, when you see the fig tree blossom, the time, <coughs> excuse me, the time is near. So what are we looking for? We're looking for fig tree. We're not looking for the hand on the clock. We're looking for a season. Therefore, we must be experts on the season, not necessarily the numbers on the clock. Which is why some people are so fabulously famous for speculation today. As it relates to Israel, and Roger is going to talk about that, let me, uh, let me tell you the things that I pay the closest attention to. Don't pay attention to people giving me numbers. Somebody starts giving me numbers, I don't pay attention to them. I study numbers from a shell. I don't need that. Because of what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, most difficult passage for a pre-tribulationist, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You talk about gymnastics, you got to play gymnastics with it. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, if you go to the website preresrapture.com, Alan has written an excellent article on this passage and the fact that it poses great difficulty to those who want to insist that it has no relevance as the Lord as it relates to the Lord's return and our being gathered together to him. It says in the first verse. Okay, then they try to figure out where you're going to put a period because they don't like the fact that no period comes right there. They want to put a period right after uh, two uh, chapter uh, 2 verse uh, 1 and he kept going Paul kept going he didn't understand punctuation he didn't know how to write well and he kept on going when he should have stopped that sentence there and everything would have been fine but he kept on going and uh, now we got a problem because he connects the parousia the coming of the Lord which he's just said in 1 Thessalonians 4 is when we will be gathered together to meet him in the air. And then he turns around and he uses the, the Greek word sunago, 
Sunagoge synagogue gathering together, our gathering together, the exact same root word Jesus used in Matthew 24, 29, 30, 31. The only place those two words are used, one by Jesus, one by Paul, both in the context of the Lord's coming and people being gathered to meet in the air. Hey, they must he didn't understand what he was saying. He, what does it say in the Greek? Exactly what it says in English. That he connects to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, of course, is when the Lord comes to redeem the righteous and to punish the wicked. Just makes perfect sense. To which the Apostle Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless, list Paul, make your list. Bum, 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 bum. The man of lawlessness takes his seat in the temple, demands the worship of the world, whom the Lord will come and slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, by his parousia. Now, if you want to have your signs right, then Israel is everything. Because according to this, there can be no parousia of Christ without some kind of temple in Jerusalem. There's not going to be some kind of temple in Jerusalem unless the Jews are back in Jerusalem. So 1948, we, we all started getting a little nervous, hands started sweating, and sure, and secret don't work as well as they used to. A little more sweating under the arm, ladies and gentlemen. Because all of a sudden now, we got a marker. We can have some fulfillments because the people primary to that fulfillment is back in their land and now having some access to the very things that they need in order for fulfillment to occur. Therefore, I believe the budding of the tree related to the nation of Israel is a factor. What's going on in Israel right now, up to me, is of extreme significance. And there are some things happening. Number one, there is a solid movement to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. I followed very closely. The rebuilding of that temple is more than just an idea of a few fanatics. It is now caught on in the mainstream. There is now mainstream people talking about the need for a Jewish center. In fact, I just uh, had discussions about the fact that there's a discussion that there needs to be three worship sites there. Jewish, Arabic, and Christian. I'm going to build a church on the Temple Mount. That's significant. There's also the movement, of course, to restore the priesthood. Two years ago, a necessity was put out to, re, to build or to make the priestly garments for the priests who will serve in the temple. That order was sent to South America. The special material that was necessary for that in South America. That material has gotten been gotten, and they're ready, and they needed the measurements of the priests who would wear the garments. Four months ago in Jerusalem, there was a gathering of all priests qualified to serve who were measured, and those measurements were sent 
to the factory for the finishing of the priestly garments. There has begun a movement to have a restoration of the Sanhedrin. There's a serious discussion in Israel among the Orthodox that there needs to be a 70 counseled elder as the ultimate rule and authority in the land of Israel over the Knesset. It is more than a discussion. For the first time in almost 2,000 years, a serious discussion is going on in Israel, Israel right now about the restoration of the Davidic kingship. There has begun to be a call for a Davidite, someone of Davidic descent, to be crowned as king in the land of Israel. That is a discussion that is happening right now. That to me is very significant. The most significant thing that has happened in Israel in the last 50 years, in my opinion, involves the return of Jews. Now, it's been happening all along for the last 50 years. Various Jewish groups. Ukrainian Jews, South American Jews. But there was one return, didn't get a lot of play in the press, which was the most significant of all. Two plane loads of Jews from northeast India was returned to Israel. And those peoples claim to be Danites of the tribe of Dan. Now, I was in northeast India. I actually went to see some of these people because they were among people called the cookies. Uh, It was weird because we haven't heard from a Danite in almost over 2,700 years. And that these Jews living in northeast India who are in fact Jews, they don't look, they don't look Jewish. But when I saw them, it became very clear to me that when God said he's going to make nations out of Abraham, he would make all the nations of the world, that that's exactly what has happened. Because these Chinese Indian Jews who are claiming descent from Dan has returned. Now, Revelation chapter 7 doesn't mention Danites, but Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 does. And the fact that there is every tribe represented in Israel today cannot be a coincidence. It cannot. I refuse to believe that it is. Could be, but I don't believe it. The fact that those people 
who were authenticated as legitimate Jews, just as the Ethiopian Jews were, in fact, authenticated to be authentic Jews. These people are legitimate Jews. I don't know whether they are true Danites. They claim to be Danites. But the fact that there haven't been any Danites in Israel in over 3,000 years, to me, is quite significant. I would say, based on the return of some people calling themselves Danites, that every piece of the puzzle necessary for Israel to fulfill itself is there. Every piece. That is what causes me concern. Not that this is the 6,000th year, because it could or could not be. The fact that there are every tribe represented in Israel of Jews, authentic Abraham Jews. Not believers, but claiming blood to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is significant to me. With the demise of these United States, in my life, I'm 50, I have not seen the conglomeration of enough things come together that could move so quickly as I see them now. Now, I'm not a sensationalist, and I don't believe in hysteria, because I know things can happen overnight. It can look like it's going one way, and overnight it can change and go another direction. You don't, you don't get excited. You just watch. Just watch. What time is it? It's more serious now than it has ever been. And I say that because of the position that Israel is in and the fact that we are on the decline. This nation is on decline. If we, overnight, you could wake up tomorrow and our money would be worthless. We would lose our economic role in the world. And in quick order, our military advantage would be gone as well. Our moral advantage is gone. And the number of Christians, or even people claiming to be Christian, gone. There is very little to hold it on the side of good over against evil. I would say to you tonight... You should be sober, not frightened, not running like a bunch of scared rabbits, sober. That we have entered an extremely significant season in biblical fulfillment. God can turn it. He can give grace. He can extend the time. God can do whatever he wants. I'm just telling you that as one who spends all his time thinking about this stuff, 
I believe it's time to be sober. We need to be thinking seriously that within a generation, every piece of the puzzle is in place. And I'm watching Israel with great concern. With great concern. Father, I pray tonight as we wrestle with the challenge that is before us, that we would be a sober people, not frightened, not running scared, but sober. That we would not go running after every wind and doctrine because it sounds good, but that we would watch the signs a world controlled by evil, lawlessness day by day. Your people regathered, reconstituted, and in a position to make decisions about their own destiny. Help us to be serious and sober, to look at your word, to take it literally for what it says, and wait. Help us to wait well And if it so be that we are that generation called upon to face the final, help us to pass the final test and to pass it well. We bless your name. We honor your name. In Christ's name, amen.